Let us turn in our Bibles, if you can, remain standing for a moment longer, and turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to consider two verses of 1 John chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. This is the word of our Lord. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning you from this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On February 11th, 1995, Bob Newhart hosted a Saturday Night Live episode, you know, uh, the infamous or famous, however you see it, uh, show on NBC. I've referred to this skit several times, but it really fits what we are going to be considering here tonight. Part of that episode was a skit in which Newhart plays a therapist. And his client comes in to talk with him because she has this life-dominating fear of being buried alive in a box. That's, that's the, the skit that's going on there in Saturday Night Live. Part of, part of the dialogue goes like this. Uh, Newhart is playing the part of Dr. Schweitzer, and the client's name is Catherine. And they talk to one another this way. Dr. Schweitzer. Tell me about the, the problem that you wish to address. Catherine, oh, okay, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. I just start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Dr. Schweitzer, has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? Catherine, no, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. Dr. Schweitzer, so what you are saying is you are claustrophobic. Catherine, yes, yes, that's it. Dr. Schweitzer, all right. Well, let's go, Catherine. I'm going to say two words to you right now. I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. Catherine, shall I write them? That's why I say, no, well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words we find that most people can remember them. Catherine says, okay. Dr. Schweitzer, are you ready? Catherine, yes. Dr. Schweitzer, okay, here they are. Stop it. <laughs> I'm sorry? Catherine says, stop it. <coughs> Catherine, stop it? Yes. S-C-O-P, new word, I-T. Stop it. Catherine, so, so what, what are you saying? Dr. Schweitzer, you know, it's funny. I say two simple words that I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you are saying. I mean, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. And then as the skit goes on, Catherine is still fighting, and, and he ends by saying, Stop it, or I will bury you alive in a box. 
it's a it's a really funny skit unless you fear being buried alive in a box. Then it, that's not so so funny. It's funny though because deep down it makes sense. It makes sense to us. We prefer complicating things and do not like when the answer to our problems is simpler than we expected. I think that's a natural human tendency. We tend to want to complicate things instead of just taking things at face value and seeing that the solution may be simple. And I want us to understand that the solution for our problems being simple is not the same as being easy. Do you see that? There's a difference there between simplicity and easiness. Now, often we hide behind the it's complicated phrase in order to not do what God calls us to do. At a very basic level, the solution for sin in the life of the Christian is simple. The solution is not sinning. As Dr. Schweitzer would say, the solution is stopping it. And when he or she, the Christian, sins, the solution is also simple. He or she turns to Christ for forgiveness and strength for not to sin again. And that is the point that the Apostle John makes in these two verses here in 1 John chapter 2. And that's really the outline for our sermon. First, we're going to look at the fact that we're not to sin. And secondly, we're going to see that even when we sin, we don't have to despair. We turn to Christ for forgiveness and strength to follow the Lord So, verse 1, John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So John says, don't sin. Stop it, is how John starts here. And notice that the apostle is not afraid to tell Christians not to sin. Uh, We developed this idea that we are bound to sin, that we can't just say don't sin because that's who we are and we're just going to do it. But that's not how the New Testament the scriptures as a whole portray the Christian. It has become unpopular in Reformed circles to preach on commands or to tell people what to do from the pulpit or in counseling. Uh, one objection comes from the camp that says that we, are must emph- we must emphasize only the grace of God and to tell people to do things is legalism. So we shouldn't really be telling people what to do. Another objection comes from the camp that says that preaching should only reflect what Christ has done. They say only the indicatives of the scriptures, only the things that talk about Christ. That should be the only content of preaching. And the Holy Spirit should be the one that applies the imperative, the commands of the Bible. I even heard a guy say once that the the height of arrogance is for the preacher to try to apply the word of God. Because that's the job of the Holy Spirit. The the sermon should never include a command. It should only include what Christ has done. The problem is that if you preach the Bible, you come across these pesky commandments. These these things that we are supposed to tell the people to do. When God chose to reveal himself to the people, to his people, the, 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 the primary thing he did, he gives us ten things. Ten things that are super important that they should actually uh, do and not do. The Bible itself often tells people what to do. And if we are going to preach and believe what the Bible says, we're going to preach and believe in obedience to the law of God. 
We have to stop thinking that we are bound to sin. We, can, we have to stop thinking that we just can't do anything about it. That's where we are, and we're going to sin. That's a very defeatist position. It will actually lead to despair. F.F. F. Bruce, a commentator, a British commentator on the New Testament, he says, Sin indeed is so thoroughly uncharacteristic of the Christian life that a life which is marked by sin cannot be called Christian. And we've just accepted the fact now The Christians are just those people who sin, which is not how the Bible describes those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And people say that there is something contradictory between the grace of God and also preaching the law of God. And yet the grace of God is always given to us so that we can obey. The end goal of grace is obedience. In Titus chapter 2 Starting at verse 11, Paul is talking to Titus about the grace of God. And he says this, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So it is great statement about the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared. And is a, is a mentioning of, of the reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory and all that He's done for His people. And then he continues in verse 12 that saying that the grace of God has appeared to all men doing something. And this is what the grace does. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So what is it, what is it that the grace of God teaches those of us who follow Jesus Christ? It teaches us how to live a holy life. How to deny self. How to live for the glory of God. That's the result of the grace of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we are told that we are elected unto what? Unto obedience. The result of, our, of God, the triune God of the Bible, before time began, choosing a people to himself so that they would be delivered from sin unto righteousness with the goal of obedience. You know, people always often issue the claim of legalism. Legalism in the church tends to have the same Force the, the, the claim of legalism, the accusation of legalism tends to have the same force as the claim of racism in the broader society, right? If somebody wants to discredit you, what is it that they charge you? Well, you're racist. No matter what it is, you're, you're a racist. Legalism, the church has kind of the same idea. If, somebody, if you're accused of legalism, you always have to backtrack and say, oh, no, and then, you know... But really, people, legalism only takes place when one is counting on his obedience to some sort of law, either the law of God or some other standard, as the means through which the Father will receive him into his fellowship. Seeking to obey God because God has worked in you, transformed you, given you the Spirit, redeemed you in Jesus Christ, is not legalism. It's just plain old Christianity. It's plain old the religion of the Scriptures. Now, notice how pastoral John is when he speaks to them. He says in verse 1, My little children. He tells them not to sin, but he does it as a loving father, not like Bob Newhart. No, he's just not, stop it. That's not how he approaches. He approaches them as a father, as a loving father, as their elder pastor. He addresses the whole congregation as my little children, not just the children, but the everyone in the congregation and his tenderness comes across in his plea to the congregation to live holy lives he pleads pleads with them 
Don't sin. Live a holy life. You know, he's writing this epistle for the very purpose of exhorting the people of God and us through them to live holy lives that are marked by obedience to the word of God. He says in verse 1, My little children, these, uh, these things I've, I write to you so that you may not sin. Now these things, I believe, refer back to what he said already in verses 6 through 10. All those if statements that we took a look at uh, two weeks ago. So what are, what are the things that he has written so that, we will, that they will help us to live a holy life? What are the things that he's written that will help his children, that's us, really, live a holy life? Well, in verse 6 it says, don't walk in darkness. Uh, kind of uh, smells of Psalm 1, right? Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't stand on the way of the wicked. Don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Don't walk in darkness. And you will be able to, by the grace of God, overcome sin. Walk in the light, in verse 7 of chapter 1. Faith in Christ and obedience to His Word. Walk in that. Don't deny that you sin, in verse 8. Don't say that you've achieved some sort of perfection. Don't somehow erase the fact that you still have the leftovers of the old self in there. In verse 9, it says, Confess your sins so that you can be forgiven. And as we live our life of repentance and confession, we are growing our obedience to the Lord. In verse 10, it says, Don't deny that you are capable of sinning. Now, in verse 8, it says, if you say you are not sinning, you are a liar. If in verse 10, it says, if you say if you have not sinned. Some people say, you know what? I'm not capable of sin. I've never been. I've never done anything. Um, and he says, don't do that. If you say that, you are not going to be able to obey the Word of God. Because that is a lie. And notice, again, in verses 6 to 10 of chapter 1, the consequences of following what John says. He says that uh, if, you, if you believe what I'm saying, if you do what the things I'm saying you're going to have fellowship with the Father and with one another. He says the truth is going to be in our hearts and lives. He says that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says that we're going to have forgiveness and that the Word of God will dwell in us. So he says, I write these things that you may not sin. And these things, is, these things are the things that are in verses 6 through 10. Simply following the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace, relying on Him and nothing else in order to be able to succeed in obeying God because at the core of obedience is the atoning work of Christ you can't obey apart from that and that's what we see in the rest of verse 1 and then verse in verse 2 so John says don't sin don't sin but if you do the rest of verse 1 and, and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is a reality. Even as we attempt to live holy lives, we'll fall at times. And as we grow in Christ, that should be getting less and less, though we're never going to attain perfection in this life. But that's what we are pressing forward, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 3. But we fall. We stumble. We struggle at times. And John doesn't want his little children to fall into despair and go deeper into sin. We have a tendency that when we fail, when we fall, to allow that 
to drag us further into despair. And as we get into despair because of our sins, we tend to sin more. And John doesn't want us to go there. He wants us to know that if in our pursuit of God, if we fail at times, that we don't have to go into despair. We simply turn to Christ to be forgiven. He reminds us of something he had already mentioned in passing in verse 7. That the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins. Notice that he says in verse 1, and If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. The anyone refers to those who are in the we group in the same verse. Jesus is the advocate of those who are in the we group, that is, those who are united to one another by faith in Jesus Christ, who is our head, which is part of that fellowship that we already saw in verse 1. He's the advocate of his church. And if you are in Christ, Jesus is your advocate. We're going to take a look at what advocate means in just a... Well, right now, actually. Now, the, terms, the term advocate refers to a person who acts as a spokesperson or representative of someone else's policy, purpose, or cause, especially before a judge in a court of law. So an advocate is one who speaks for you, who intercedes for you, who wants the best for you, who wants the court to declare you to be innocent of anything. And, it's, and it, this word advocate is definitely a term that the Apostle John liked since it's the only one that he uses in the whole New Testament. He uses four times in the Gospel and then he uses this one time here. In the Gospel, each time he uses the word advocate is in reference to the Holy Spirit. And our Bible tends to translate it as helper or counselor. But that's the same word. And in here in 1 John chapter 2, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the Spirit and, and Jesus have this twin ministry in which Jesus advocates for us before the Father. And the Spirit advocates for the Father and the Son before us. The difference is that the Spirit is just telling us who Christ and the, and the Father is. He doesn't need to bring anything extra. But the Son, He has to come something, bring something before the Father. And He brings His own blood. Notice what John says there in verse 2 again. Oh, sorry, in the second half of verse 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He could have stopped after saying we have an advocate with the Father. It's, in, it's understood that's Jesus Christ, but he names our advocate. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He can stand before the Father on our behalf because he is righteous. Do you realize, and I hope you do, that all our righteousness, all our rightness, all our doing things for good, whatever that good is, amount to dirty, the dirtiest, most disgusting sort of rags. But Jesus' righteousness is completely acceptable to the Father. To be really graphic, so in Brazil, the sewer system cannot handle toilet paper. So after you use the toilet paper, you put in the garbage. And then the garbage has to take him out. To come before the, the Father saying, God, look at me. Look at how great I am. Is to grab that, to that garbage full of used toilet paper and say, God, you should accept me because I'm bringing you this gift. 
that is silly, isn't it? That's plain old foolish to do that. But the Son comes in His own righteousness before the Father. True righteousness. And He pleads for us. And the Father hears Him. You know, Christ pleads for us through His own blood. In verse 2, John says, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. He's our propitiation. And that's another word that we're not used to seeing very often. So what is propitiation? Again, F.F. Bruce says, Something, propitiation is something which God has provided in His grace to bring man into His presence with the assurance that they are accepted by Him since He has removed the barrier that kept them at a distance. That's what Christ does. He removes the barrier that has kept us at a distance. He brings us and the Father together. And He's doing that for you right now. Do you believe in Jesus? He's right now interceding for you. If you sin, He's there interceding for you. We have that advocate. We don't have to go into despair. Again, this is a word that uh, is a, a John word. Only John uses this word for propitiation in the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, he only uses it twice here and in chapter 4, verse 10. Look at, take a look at that. For chapter 4, verse 10. He says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it's not like God is angry at you in heaven if you're a believer, and Jesus needs to come and say, No, 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 it's going to be okay. Don't, 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 don't be mad at them. Now here, have this so that, uh, have my blood so that you're not going to be mad at them. No. Out of love for His church, God the Father appointed Christ to be that propitiation, to be that person who is going to bring God and man together so that we can have fellowship with the Father. This word is used in the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, uh, several times. It's used for the Day of Atonement. It's used for atonement in general. It's used for forgiveness. It's used for the sin offering. And all these things picture the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it always has the idea of appeasing and covering but it goes beyond that. It also includes the idea of bringing together. And that's what Jesus does for us. And we, when we sin, He brings us together with the Father. And notice that John says that, Christ is, that, that it is Christ Himself who is the propitiation there in verse 2. And He Himself is the propitiation, which is better, uh, the, the New King James is better than the ESV here at this point. Remember in the Old Testament what was necessary for the forgiveness of sins? The priest would bring the blood of a blameless animal before the Lord. Couldn't be, their own, couldn't be the priest's own blood because he was not blameless. So it had to be the blood of a blameless animal. Hoping that the Lord would forgive. Jesus is not only the priest, the advocate, who pleads for his people. But he does that on the basis of his own blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's what Christ has done for you. And that's why he continues to stand before the Father to make sure that when you sin, when I sin, we are forgiven as he's still presenting his blood to the Father. 
you know, propitiation is a related term to the word for mercy seat. You've all have heard of the mercy seat is the place in the most holy place where the high priest would once a year actually pour the blood of the innocent animal on behalf of the people of God. And the place where the wrath of God was turned away is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you don't sin, but when you do, but if you sin, don't despair. Turn to the Father through Jesus Christ, who's pleading for you, the one who actually, whose blood brought you closer to God, but into the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says Jesus does for us as our propitiation. It's interesting that in, here in Romans 3 that we're going to read in a moment, he uses a, a different term, but it's related. He actually uses the term for the mercy seat. And he says that Christ is that mercy seat. So Christ is not only the offering, but also the place on which the offering is poured. He's everything. He doesn't, God did not leave anything for somebody else to do. Christ has accomplished it all. In Romans chapter 3, starting halfway through verse 22, we read, For there is no difference, that is, there is no difference between the Jew or the Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to, them, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God himself justifies you. God himself declares you to be free from sin. God himself says, I look at my son and I'm seeing you. Or I'm looking at you. And I'm seeing my son. So John says, don't sin. Work hard. But when you do sin, don't go into despair. The Lord Jesus Christ is before the Father interceding for you. On your behalf, by his own blood. An offering that in Hebrews chapter 9 says the Father already received. And Jesus Christ is the only one who the Father accepts as a propitiation for our sins. Look at the end of verse 2. Paul, uh, John says, And not for our hours only, but also for the whole world. The phrase, also for the whole world, does not refer to some universal offer of salvation or to some universal forgiveness of sins, but to the u- uniqueness of the person and work of Christ. There's no other propitiation. If, if anyone in the world wants to come to the Father, they have to come to Jesus Christ. So in that sense, He's a propitiation for the whole world. The whole, there, it, it, he's not for just these people and then these other people, if they want to come to the Father, they have to find another way. If anyone in the world wants to come to the Father, it has to be through Jesus Christ. He's unique. There's no other way to access the Father. So John tells us, don't sin. Work hard at it. It feels like work, because it is work. But it's a work based on the grace of God. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are to, to, 
to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The, the, it's, it's the, the, you, the word for work there is the word spend energy. Do the work. Why? He says, because it is God who is working in you to will, that is to want, and then to do his good pleasure. So John tells us, don't sin. You read the grace of God in you. We have the spirit of God in you to follow God in obedience. But at the core of his exhortation for us not to sin is the atoning work of Christ. So how do we obey God as a single person? That, 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 that's climbed to the height of arrogance, as that one pastor said. And let's try to apply these things to us uh, today so, to three different categories. So how do we obey God? How do we don't sin? How, we, how do we repent from sin as a single person? Well, this way. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that He stands before the Father for us. And this faith results in our working really hard to do what God calls us to do. And when we don't, we turn to Christ, are forgiven, and continue in obedience. It's simple. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. Now, how do we obey God as married people? This way. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that He stands before the Father for us, this faith results in our working really hard to do what God calls us to do. And when we don't, we turn to Christ, are forgiven, and continue in obedience. Now, how do we obey God in our old age? Well, have you followed the pattern here? Obedience is based on the same thing for everyone. It's simple that way. Young people don't obey, single people don't obey God differently than married people, than old people, than young people. It's all based on the work of God through Christ in us. As the Spirit dwells in us, we do what the Bible says we do. And when we fail, we turn to God and we're forgiven. Can you believe that, brothers and sisters? That no matter what we do, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We don't have to despair of that. And that thought actually frees us to obey. We don't have to be concerned about failing because even if we fail, the Lord is going to forgive us. And we're free to follow Him and to obey Him and to risk for Him. Because even when we fail, He forgives us. So, my little children, don't sin. But if you do, you have an advocate of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God who forgives We pray that the message of forgiveness would be an encouragement to your people. We pray also that the message of obedience would be a convicting message to all of us, that we might grow in our holiness as we endeavor to follow you. We thank you that the Spirit of God is working us. We thank you that your Son intercedes for us. Strengthen us, Father, to follow you and to obey you and to turn to you when we fail in our obedience. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.